The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who didst instruct the hearts of thy faithful by the light of the Holy Ghost, grant us by that same Spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in its consolation. Through Christ our Lord, Amen. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I am Thomas Nagley. I'm here with Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V, and he also serves as the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you this evening? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And yourself? Not too bad, Father. As usual, any prayer requests tonight before we get into our, our topic? Always, yes. Uh, we could literally be naming uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of people on the Immaculate Heart Mary prayer list and on our own uh, Immaculate Conception list. But um, we can't name them all, but God knows them all. And if you remember those uh, who are listed there, then you'll be praying for them all at the same time. But I commend your prayers in particular for uh, Mr. Paul Riley. Paul is still recovering, we pray, from this uh, accident that suffered. he suffered. And pray, please pray for him, his wife Amy and his, his family. Uh, please pray for Monsignor Handworker also, and his cousins, uh, Nancy and Lori also. Pray for Joe Percher and uh, Richard Wilt was taken to the hospital today. He was not a pain. Please pray for Richard and Terry Wilt and Cheryl Johnson also. Uh, please pray for Cheryl and her husband Terry. Uh, pray for Pat Tootie and her husband Jim. Uh, of course, we have ongoing prayers for Mrs. Marion Shahan and uh, Mrs. Donna King and Mr. Cliff Hogan, Captain Hogan, and so many others. Uh, please keep them all in your prayers. Pray for our country. Our country is in serious trouble. And we need to pray for the church because the church is under attack. We know that. So, yep. all of the above. Okay, very good. Father, we have um, lots of different topics from our viewer email inbox tonight. I was hoping we could work through some of these, mm -hmm. um, kind of all different kinds of topics all over the board, but some very interesting, very good questions. So our viewers are very uh, interested to hear your responses, Father. Uh, the first one I have here is uh, a viewer who asks if you can answer a burning question for them. Uh, they ask you to comment on Taylor Marshall's latest video regarding Vigano questioning Francis's papacy. Uh, the first question here is, what is the definition of the church, quote-unquote? Uh, is just the definition just as simple as the cardinals and the pope? Uh, so if someone believes that Francis is not pope, does that mean he left the church? How would you answer that, Father? Okay, well, there are several questions there. Right? The first is the definition of the church. Um, you could look that up in the Catholic Encyclopedia of 1911, 1913. Um, any, actually, Catholic apologetics book before Vatican II, um, Generally, they say, and the, the definition can be rather lengthy, actually. Um, but it comes down to the, the, the church is the, the congregation 
of those who are validly baptized and united together uh, with the true faith, one true faith of Christ, and who all uh, participate in the same worship through the Holy Mass, the unbloody sacrifice of Calvary, and uh, the benefits of the sacraments that Christ established, and who are united also in rule under their legitimate pastors. And um, that's generally where the definition of the church begins. You know, there are other aspects that also factor into the definition. But, uh, you know, the, the, the problem, when you look at that definition today, you immediately see that there is a dilemma posed by that. Because those who claim to be the legitimate pastors are not united in faith, and not among themselves, and they're not even united, well, they're certainly not united with the traditional faith of the past. Because that unity of faith extends to not only the current moment throughout the world, uh, geographically, but it, it also requires that the faith be one throughout time and not have changed. So even if the, all, the entire world all coalesced in believing the same thing, it couldn't be the true faith if it was not consistent with what the church had taught in the past, right? So that unity with the past is essential. And uh, the church is in a position right now where so many of those who are regarded as pastors in the church have actually deviated from and even uh, gone to the point of almost condemning, right, the belief of the past. Notably, Francis. Uh, Francis has rejected uh, the beliefs of the church in the past, even matters of her ordinary magisterium. He has explicitly rejected. Uh, so the church is in a state of a dilemma right now, and this is divided people uh, very much. Uh, I don't know that we want to go into that question right now, but it really is a problem, right? Mm -hmm. the, the first mark of the church is unity, and that unity uh, covers the unity of faith, of worship, and of, and of government or rule under pastors. Uh, this always brings into the, it, you know, the realm of the question of apostolic succession. But again, Whenever they talk about apostolic succession, too, they talk about that apostolic succession from the apostles, not only in terms of the powers uh, given from one uh, generation to another through the church, um, um, but also the, the oneness in faith. And inevitably, the question is always going to come back to that of, is there this continuity of faith, or was there a so-called rupture with the faith of the past? Mm -hmm. This is what is causing so much confusion and uh, hard, hardship today. Catholics trying to find their way. This is why the only real solution is for Catholics to um, obtain the, the old, the traditional catechisms, learn the traditional faith, and practice it in the traditional mass and sacraments. And uh, this even does answer the question of rule because the rule ultimately that the church follows is that of the Holy Ghost whom Christ sent, and it is he guiding the church uh, through her sacred tradition that is ultimately our rule, and that has more authority than any one pope or all the popes put together, right? Because all the papacy itself was given to us by Christ in order to protect Catholic tradition. 
as uh, St. Paul said to the Galatians, if we, meaning the apostles themselves, or if an angel from heaven should come and preach a different gospel, hold him to be anathema, reject him. And so, um, again, this is the reality of the situation here when you have uh, those who present themselves as pastors in the church rejecting the faith mm-hmm. of the past. So, so anyway, that, that addresses one question anyway, the first question, the definition of a church. Uh, what else does uh, the they also questioner have, ask? There? They also ask about uh, Taylor Marshall's recent video on, mm-hmm. on, on Vigano. Um, they link to it. I don't believe either of us, Father, had the time to watch through the full, the full video. I did skim through some of it, but our... Our viewer does um, does paraphrase uh, what what she says, or Taylor Marshall's point, what his point is in the video. But uh, just briefly, it seems that throughout the video, Taylor Marshall is um, reading through the recent speech of Vigano that we've talked about, we've referenced on our show that he was um, intended mm-hmm. to give at the Catholic Identity Conference, but never actually gave. But uh, in regards to that, that question is uh, Francis's consent, right? Right, right. Um, and, and commenting on that, our, our viewer says that Taylor Marshall. Uh, his his claim, his point is that we should listen to St. Robert Bellarmine and stay in the church until a council decides this question one way or the other. Just how would you respond to that? Right, if, well, if that is uh, indeed his, uh, Taylor Marshall's response, uh, then again, I would say, well, it's not entirely clear that uh, St. Robert Bellarmine uh, especially under the circumstances today, would say, well, we, we have to get a council to settle this question. Yeah. Um, uh, Robert Bellarmine did state that he favored the position that a pope could le- lose the papacy by, um, by losing the faith, right? By publicly professing uh, her- heresies against the faith. Mm-hmm. But um, then what? You know, if, if a pope were to do that, then um, there are those who say you would have to have a council that would meet council of bishops. And they would have to simply declare that the Pope had lost the faith. Um, they couldn't depose him, but they could declare the fact that he had lost the faith. Right? And what he was preaching was contrary to the faith. Uh, well, first of all, I, th- I think uh, uh, that answer is not at all to the point of what Archbishop Vigano said, because Vigano was not talking about that question at all, of whether a man who was a true pope could lose the papacy by losing the faith. He wasn't addressing that question at all. His point was that um, Francis not only had a defective intention, um, but that Francis actually had a contrary intention. Um, a point that I had made also a number of times in the past over years that uh, Francis, um, according to Cardinal Archbishop Vigano, wanted the office of the papacy for the sake of an office which he doesn't actually believe in, he doesn't even understand the nature of it, but he wanted to have the power of it in order to destroy the church. I mean, Archbishop Vigano said that this was Francis's uh, manifest intention that uh, his, his purpose in uh, wielding the power of the papacy in the church was to attack the church. So uh, actually, Archbishop Vigano does not exactly, cor- you know, his position doesn't exactly correspond to the position I stated because my, my thought was, well, the Pope, a man who is elected, in this case, by the College of Cardinals, 
has to accept the papacy, formally accept the office before he becomes the pope. Even if he was unanimously elected, he's not the pope until he accepts the office because of the gravity of the responsibilities. And uh, if he doesn't ex formally accept the office, he never becomes the pope. That Francis cannot formally accept the office of the papacy because he manifestly does not believe in the office of the papacy. He's made it very clear from the beginning, from the outset, that he has no concept of what the Catholic papacy is. He could not, he could not uh, accept it with, uh, with uh, you know, that, that office and its responsibilities. It's something he doesn't even believe exists. But he has a contrary idea of it. He has a very false idea of it. So that even makes it worse. Uh, Archbishop Vigano uh, brought up the case of a man who gets married, who not only does not have any concept of what marriage is, but he has a contrary concept. And the church teaches that if a man gets married and he excludes the essential concept of what marriage is, its purposes, its properties, that he's not validly married, period. He cannot be validly married because he rejects the very essence of what he's agreeing to, you know. Um, and so um, Archbishop Bigano applies that to Francis and the papacy. And it's, it's a pretty good, uh, I'd say, analogy that he's, he's applying. I think it really does work there. I think it's, it's accurate. So uh, this is a far, far different question than the question of a man who is certainly the pope losing the papacy because he loses the faith. This has to do with Francis could ever be the pope in the first place. Okay, so um, if that is Taylor Marshall's answer, I'd say he's not answering the question at all. And I don't see anybody addressing the actual point that Archbishop Vigano has made. <clears throat> they all seem to default to this idea of a question of whether a man who's a pope could lose the papacy. That's not what we're talking about. That's not what Archbishop Vigano is talking about at all. The question is, uh, could Francis have ever become the Pope? Now, there, there's like, like Barnhart who say that, no, because Benedict's resignation was not valid, and so Benedict continued to be the Pope, and Francis could never have been the, been the Pope. That's another question entirely. And a lot of voices are raised on both sides of that issue. That doesn't address what Archbishop Bigano has said either. No one that, I, that I've seen is actually addressing that question. And I consider that to be the essential question. Um, so, in any case, um, uh, what, ex what specifically did, uh, or exactly did the questioner ask there? They just asked if you could comment on that, that video. Okay. And then they said that, uh, that they pointed out the Vigano questioned Francis's papacy, and Taylor Marshall says that we should listen to St. Robert Bellarmine and stay in the church until the council decides. Mm -hmm. So, well, actually, St. Robert Bellarmine did not say that. Right. Taylor Marshall says that. Yeah. He's interpreting Robert Bellarmine yeah. saying that. Yeah. <clears throat> Whether St. Robert Bellarmine would say that today, I doubt very seriously. You know, this whole question of calling a council to decide whether a pope is deviated from the faith or not depends upon the bishops themselves and whether they have deviated from the faith or not, right? You have to start with the council of bishops who are Catholic. But I think there's a case to be made that the majority of bishops in the Novus Ordo are not professing the faith. 
they're practicing the modernist religion, the Novus Ordo religion. It came basically out of Vatican II. And uh, they don't stand up for the faith. They don't defend the faith, right, for the most part. Um, even those who might still have the faith. So, again, what kind of a council can you possibly have to then determine whether Francis himself has the faith or has lost publicly defected from the faith when they themselves don't publicly profess the faith and many of them have publicly defected from the faith and are practicing the Novus Ordo religion of modernism to begin with. So this whole idea of saying, well, let's wait for a council to handle this. I mean, St. Robert Bellarmine did not necessarily foresee all possible situations and he certainly didn't foresee a Francis when he was discussing this question. So I think to try to interpret St. Robert Bellarmine uh, as though he foresaw Francis and he was uh, responding to a Francis situation, I think that's a big mistake yeah. and it's very misleading. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> even the question of calling a council, I mean, even otherwise, Tom, to me, I don't understand the thinking there because if you called a council <clears throat> of bishops to, to decide whether a pope had in fact publicly defected from the faith, <clears throat> you most likely would not get a unanimous decision. And if you had a hundred, two hundred, a thousand bishops present and they were trying to decide this question, it might be divided 50-50, it might be divided, you know, two-thirds against one-third, it might be divided 90% against 10% of the bishops going one way or the other. But that would inevitably mean that there are some bishops who say he did not defect from the faith, so he did not lose the papacy. And a large uh, percentage of, of the other, other bishops saying, yes, he did defect from the faith, and he's not the Pope. And you would have an automatic schism yeah. from doing that. Yeah. I just don't see how that could possibly resolve this problem. Yeah. It, no. it seems to be a case of where we try to make human efforts to deal with a with a, a, a problem that goes beyond human powers to, to address, and it just makes it worse. Yeah. Also, many of those bishops and cardinals would be ones that were appointed by uh, Francis and well, nowadays, yes, after his own image. But but also, if if they did declare some kind of um, if they did say that he fell away from the faith that he was no longer a valid pope, well, what what would that mean for their appointments? Would that mean that they are? Um, say, saying that, that their, their appointments were invalid because they were appointed by an invalid well, pope? there you are. And I understand that now the majority of the cardinals of the new church were appointed by Francis. So that's true. So are they supposed to decide that he's defected from the faith, that he defected from the faith before, and all of their appointments are null and void, which would be like a vicious circle? Then how could they sit and decide whether or not he's defected from the faith if their decision would render their own appointment as cardinals null and void. Yeah. So uh, the whole question to me is, is a moot question right now. I think the fundamental question we have to ask, and we have to bypass all of these other nonsense questions that get us off the track. And we have to go right back to the fundamentals. <clears throat> Could Francis himself have ever in fact become the Pope? because of his not only erroneous belief about the papacy, his non-belief in the true papacy, and his belief in a false papacy, which he himself is creating in the process of, of uh, the rampage of errors he saw, right? He, he is a true new order pope. 
I mean, look at the Senate he just finished. I mean, people were expecting that he was going to rehabilitate and, and, uh, all kinds of immorality and, and uh, unnatural practices and, and make them okay. It didn't happen, but he opened the door for it. He certainly opened the door. The Senate says it wants to, uh, what does it say? Uh, it wants to rethink the, uh, the anthropological, anthropological categories that the, pre the church had used in the past. Wow. Now, that's a really nice statement, to rethink and reevaluate the anthropological categories. In other words, they're, t they're talking about homosexuality in their fancy, like, nonsense way. This is the door they're opening. We've got to rethink this. So this synod actually opened that door. Francis kind of kicked the can down the road now to the synod that's going to meet in 2024. They still have work to do, you know, to, to get to that point where they can just blatantly, openly do this. But he certainly um, has um, stated the intention. The intention, that's where they're going. He's made it very clear. That's where they're going. That's where they're heading right now. So uh, even when he doesn't come out openly and blatantly and say something contrary to the faith, uh, he actually does everything, opens the door, points that way, all the signs are going that way, and um, you know, there's, there's just no doubt in anyone's mind what is in his mind. Yeah. Okay, well, Father, I think we can um, get through some of these other emails a little, uh, a little more quickly. You have a couple questions about Archbishop Lefebvre. Uh, one asks uh, if there is a difference in Bishop Cook's excommunications compared to Archbishop Lefebvre's excommunications. Uh, they say, I understand that Archbishop Lefebvre's excommunication was Latte Setentiae. In one of your videos discussing the Took consecrations, you mentioned that he committed a grave sin in quote-unquote consecrating schismatic bishops belonging to the old Catholic sect uh, and that he incurred a most severe form of excommunication. So what was that form that uh, Archbishop Took incurred, and how does that differ from the excommunication that Archbishop Lefebvre incurred? Well, Archbishop uh, Took incurred an automatic excommunication, specialissimo uh, modo reservata a sancte sede. He incurred an excommunication of the most severe kind. It is most specially reserved to the Holy See itself. Okay. Because what he did was not only commit a sin, he committed a crime. Now, when we say he committed a sin, we have to be careful because that means that he is guilty, that he knew what he was doing, gave consent to it, and uh, therefore he's guilty before God. But objectively speaking, what he did was, was sinful uh, in consecrating non-Catholics. And uh, it was objectively criminal. The only way that uh, he could be absolved of guilt of the crime is if he did not really comprehend the significance of what he was doing. In Archbishop Tuck's place, case, there is plenty of evidence to question whether or not he was of sound mind. Okay? Um, and this is, of course, a problem, an additional problem to the fact that what he did was so gravely, gravely wrong and a crime against the Church in consecrating those he did, but it raises the question of whether he actually validly consecrated them. Um, because, I mean, I think we could say no one of sound mind would have done what he did the way he did, the way he did it. And, um, I mean, even those who were his chief supporters said he had the mind of a child. 
and talked about the anomalies. I mean, five cats walking on on the little altar he had in his apartment while he was saying mass there. Um, I mean, this is not normal. This is not standard Catholic practice by any means, needless to say. And then saying that he didn't believe that John Paul II was a true pope, and then a week later, con celebrating the new mass in the cathedral of Toulon with, with the John Paul appointed bishop of Toulon. You know, this this doesn't make any sense at all. And then, I mean, it goes on and on. Consec- when he was allegedly consecrating Garde Laurier, uh, invoking John Paul II's name as mandating the, the, the consecration, and having Garde Laurier stop him and, and correct him repeatedly, according to the men who were present, the only two men who were there who witnessed this. They, didn't, they weren't actually witnesses of, the, of the, uh, the consecration so much as they were witnesses of this. Basically, uh, they, they could re- repeat that they actually saw this and heard this going on. But they never could testify to the matter and form being applied. So we have all these, these problems with the uh, Took consecrations. But the greatest of them is, of course, that consecrating non-Catholics is and always has been considered a crime against the church, and the church has always condemned it. And this is very different from what Archbishop Lefebvre did. Archbishop Lefebvre consecrated Catholic priests as Catholic bishops, and he could do so. Um, uh, Pope Pius XII uh, issued an encyclical uh, Apostolorum Principis in 1958, in which he actually commented on the on the prohibition against consecrating bishops without a papal mandate. And he, he was writing about the church in China because the communist Chinese church was consecrating its own schismatic bishops without a mandate from the Holy See, of course. But what Popeyes XII said was that the excommunication that was put in place for doing such was for those who acted contra omne fas. I talked about that before, which is contrary to all Catholic practice. But it's not contrary to all Catholic practice for one bishop to consecrate another. That's, in fact, how it was done until the Pope actually said, put in place that there be three bishops involved in the consecration of bishops. It wasn't that way from the very beginning, though. And uh, so it's not contra omne fas that that would happen. And even then, at the Council of Nicaea, uh, the standard practice that was actually written into the documents, the decisions of the Council of Nicaea, was that if a bishop were to die in a diocese or a province, the bishops of the surrounding area would get together, choose a successor, consecrate him, and then put him in place. So they actually put him in the place of a jurisdiction of the church. And only afterwards would they notify the Holy See. It's easily understandable why it would be done that way. <clears throat> because the lines of communication were such that it might take weeks or months for communication to get back and forth, one way and then the other way. And, uh, you know, the Holy See simply was not, did not have the physical capabilities of, they would have to defer to the local bishops to choose a worthy man anyway. So uh, this was the standard operating procedure of the church for hundreds of years in the early days of the church, following the Council of Nicaea. So it is not contra omne fas, it's not against all Catholic practice for a Catholic bishop in necessity 
to consecrate another Catholic bishop, to consecrate a Catholic priest, a Catholic bishop. <clears throat> um, and this is precisely, actually, why uh, the Novus Ordo excommunicated Archbishop Lefebvre, because he was consecrating Catholic priests to be real Catholic bishops who had the Catholic faith and offered the Mass and gave the sacraments according to the traditional Catholic practice, okay? That's why he was excommunicated, because he was doing what a Catholic bishop should do, always and everywhere. But Archbishop of Took's case was very different. I mean, what he did was something not in accord with Catholic tradition, as Archbishop Lefebvre acted, but what he did was condemned by all Catholic tradition. Now, one might say, well, before 1951 or whatever, the, the law called for a, a bishop who consecrated someone without the necessary authorization from the Holy See being suspended. He and the other person whom he consecrated would be suspended, they'd be irregular, <clears throat> so they couldn't function. That was it. It wasn't always the fact that they were excommunicated. But I think that's misleading because it is true that prior to the decree of the Holy Office in the 1950s, leveling automatic excommunication, most specially reserved to the Holy See itself, before that decree, it was the practice that one who did such a thing would incur uh, suspension of divinis. But what that meant is he couldn't function as a Catholic bishop. He could not authorize, legitimately function as a Catholic bishop nor could the person he supposedly consecrated. What that did was it basically put him on ice until the church could investigate to see what happened. And then after the church saw what had happened, if he was guilty of doing that and was unrepentant, then he would be excommunicated. So the outcome would be essentially the same. All that Pius XII did was uh, level, level an automatic excommunication for doing it by the very fact that it was done. <clears throat> Afterwards, then, the church could investigate to see the circumstances. But uh, as, as Pope Pius XII said himself, that was put in place in reaction to what the Chinese communists were doing in China, naming their own bishops, appointing their own bishops, consecrating their own bishops, with uh, some former Catholic bishops who had defected, right? under pressure, and were willing to consecrate for the Chinese communists. It's ironic that we come to this now with Francis, who has now formally accepted the communist, Chinese Communist Party naming the bishops, right, and arranging for their own consecration. Yeah. Um, that, talk about coming full circle. And uh, again, you know, Archbishop Tut, coming from Vietnam, bordering communist China, he, he certainly was aware of that encyclical Apostolor Principis of Pius XII. He knew the import of it. And, uh, you know, consecrated people truly contrary to all Catholic practice, which simply means against all Catholic tradition. Mm -hmm. Archbishop Lefebvre did not. What, what Archbishop took was excommunicated for was a, a very, very serious matter for which the Church would excommunicate. Some of you are doing a real crime. What Archbishop Lefebvre did was not against all Catholic tradition. Okay. Very good.
Uh, Father, did Archbishop V, before he passed away, ever privately or publicly deny the primacy of the Pope? No, of course not. Archbishop V would never do that. Um, see, this is the problem. When you get someone like Paul VI, and uh, you get someone like uh, John Paul II, and after him, with a little hiatus there of John Paul I, you know, um, the question is, not denying the primacy of the papacy, but whether the man who is actually occupying the office, is he the one denying the promise of the papacy? Is he attacking his own office, if, if indeed he has it? And you see that during Pius the, the Paul VI's uh, tenure and John Paul II's tenure, the papacy was very much degraded. Um, and uh, so many of the things that they did, uh, you know, I mean, there are those who would say, oh, no, John Paul II was so conservative. He wasn't conservative. He might have been, he might have become conservative relative to the rest of the modernists who went past him. He himself said so, actually, right? Um, and uh, others who came after him, like uh, Benedict XVI, is considered to be a real conservative. But he was asked about that once, how he could be considered a conservative when he was one of the leaders of the revolution of Vatican II. And he said, well, I'm still the way I was then. I was, you know, very avant-garde back then and for changes. It's just that everybody else has become so much more liberal than I am. It makes me look conservative by comparison. <laughs> so uh, he, he almost uh, commented on that in a certain wonderment, <laughs> you know, that he was now looked upon as reactionary, where he was one of the leaders of the revolution. You know, you, 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 some might not like the comparison, but it's almost as though, uh, uh, you know, some of the leaders of the Bolshevik Revolution uh, began to look kind of conservative compared to, you know, the more radical types who, who uh, went past them. Um, but it was a revolution at Vatican II, as Archbishop Vigano says, and uh, John Paul II was very much a part of that, one of the leaders of that effort. And um, the question is not whether Archbishop Lefebvre ever denied the primacy of the, of the papacy or the pope, because he never would do that. That's part of the faith. That's essential to the faith. Uh, the question is whether those who are actually holding those offices or reputed to hold those offices were, were themselves the enemies of the papacy and were out to degrade it and destroy it. In Francis's case, I think, well, it's getting, becoming more and more obvious, becoming more and more obvious to all, yeah. little by little. Yeah. Okay, very good. Um, next email, Father, different subject, there's fewer uh, uh, references, a, a certain uh, Bible verse from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 23, verse 34, uh, which I believe is uh, our, our Lord's, one of our Lord's last words on the cross, where he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Um, this viewer asks if you could uh, explain that that verse a bit, Father, because she says uh, these last words of Christ puzzle and bother me, as I believe they are misused by so many to excuse willful ig ignorance. Uh, she says, for example, there are many who say that they don't read the Bible, um, and if they're not exposed to sources that expound on Scripture or the Catechism, then they are just home free to continue as they have been doing. Um, 
she says that uh, it is such unawareness or unadulterated ignorance abetted by lukewarmness that has brought us to where we are today. So, Father, um, could you explain these last words of our Lord at all? Well, uh, I think so. Cornelius Elapide certainly has a, a very good uh, statement on that, I'm sure. And I, I wish we could reference that right now. Perhaps for the next program we can, we can check on uh, what Cornelius Elapide says. But with regard to what uh, their dear uh, viewer is saying here, uh, it is true. On the cross, our Lord cried out. Uh, the first word of our, of our Lord on the cross was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And um, some might interpret that as kind of absolving them of responsibility for what they did. But our Lord clearly you know, talked about the responsibility of Judas, um, our Lord clearly talked about the the responsibility of the uh, Sanhedrin in judging, and uh, even talked about uh, uh, gathering them under his wings as, as a hen gathered the chicks, and now their house would be less to them desolate, and um, he forecast that the temple would be destroyed, not one stone being left upon another stone, just a generation later. That would be the divine judgment against them. So certainly our Lord was not uh, saying uh, these words, meaning that they had no responsibility for what, for what they were doing. Uh, the, problem, the problem is, who are, who are they? When our, when, when our Lord said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, was he referring to the Pharisees? Was he referring to the Sadducees? Who was he referring to? I mean, it's not really specified. Uh, did the Pharisees understand that they were putting to death the Savior? That they were putting to death the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Son of God? Did they really understand that? Probably not. I mean, the apostles didn't understand, even at that time, right? Um, they still did not grasp the significance of our Lord's crucifixion and death on the cross. Did the Sadducees understand it? No, no, they were blinded, right? By jealousy, hatred, and other things. And... Uh, so, um, in a sense, when our Lord says they know not what they do, we can understand that, literally, they did not understand the significance of what they were doing. Nonetheless, did they knew they were doing something wrong, and they were doing something evil? Well, they certainly did. They, they knew very well, right? They'd spent all that time trying to trap our Lord uh, by cunning, and... Um, they uh, accused him of every matter, of everything from uh, uh, being a blasphemer to being a, a possessed, someone possessed and a Samaritan and all the rest, you know. They hurled every accusation they thought would um, turn people against him. Um, and they, they certainly would have known the truth. Our Lord himself pointed this out to them so that they could not legitimately deny what he was saying. At one point, they just stopped asking him questions because they could not refute what he was saying. They certainly had responsibility for what they were doing. I don't think our Lord was saying, carte blanche, have mercy on everyone, Father. Nobody knows what, he, what he's doing here. No one knows what's happening. No one knows this is wrong. They all mean well. I mean, that sounds like the Novus Ordo, yeah. right? And that's not, our Lord was not new order. Our, our Lord did not say that and did not intend that. But the fact is, there are those who will follow 
false Christ, right? And our Lord spoke about that. And so, in fact, very soon in the sacred liturgy, we're going to be reading about that from the prophet. Those who are in the end times will follow false Christs and false prophets, and they will be responsible for that. They will have chosen false Christs and false prophets, and they will have responsibility. Our Lord is not saying, Father, have mercy on them because they don't know what they're doing. St. Paul says to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 about the coming of the Antichrist, he doesn't absolve those who follow the Antichrist. He said what distinguishes those who will follow the Antichrist and those who won't uh, fall victim to his lies is that those who follow the Antichrist do not have the love for the truth. And, of course, that means they're at fault and they will be judged for that. Uh, so even though they don't, if they don't have a love for the truth and they embrace the error, that doesn't mean that they will be given, forgiven because they didn't know what they were doing. At some point, they knew and they embraced what they were doing and they embraced the lie. Those who will not fall victim to the Antichrist will have a love for the truth. They will love the truth, and our Lord will, will give them the, the grace to see and know the truth with complete conviction of faith. They will hold the true faith. Um, perhaps when we read these words in Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, and um, also Romans, St. Paul to the Romans, chapter 10, <clears throat> which she cites there, I think, um, that, uh, you know, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. <clears throat> Perhaps we should understand these words in this way. When the apostles were, were saying this, well, actually, it was St. Peter. The very first sermon that any apostle gave was given by St. Peter, of all people, on Pentecost Sunday. After the coming of the Holy Ghost and the Apostles, they came out of the upper room where our Lord had uh, offered the Last Supper, uh, where they had just, uh, where they were, had been hiding for fear of the Jews, right? Where the Holy Ghost had just come upon them and filled them. They came out of that upper room and uh, they encountered all of these people who had come to, Pen to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And St. Peter is the one who was moved to open his mouth and to preach the first sermon. It's, it's uh, Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2. Very powerful. Um, and um, he quotes the prophet Joel. And Joel, the prophet from the Old Testament, says, Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So St. Uh, Peter quotes the prophet Joel. And St. Paul later quotes the prophet Joel, right, in his epistle to the Romans saying the same words. But the only way we can understand them is the way that the prophet Joel meant them. And when the prophet Joel said those words, he was saying, "Who those who call upon the name of the Lord, and by that he meant the, the true God, that Joel was the prophet of. Joel was a prophet of the true one true God. This was central to the belief of the Jews. So when he talks about calling upon the name of the Lord, He's, calling, he's talking about calling upon no one but the true God. And those who invoke the true God then will be saved, right? And he, he implicitly, of course, but very clearly, he talks about those who invoke him sincerely, not just uh, casually or, uh, let's say, insincerely, but those who sincerely cry out to the one true God will, can find salvation there. And so it is precisely in that sense that the, apostle, that the 
prophet first spoke those words hundreds of years before the coming of Christ, that St. Peter cites those words of Joel. And what he's saying here, those who call upon the name of the Lord, and who is he talking about? He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ not as heretics would have him, or as we would like to remember him, but as he really is, and as he is being preached by the apostles, right? By the, by the true gospel, as taught by the apostles who were sent out by Christ to preach the gospel of all nations. Again, Galatians, if anyone should come and preach a different gospel, let him be anathema, St. Paul says. <clears throat> it's clear that St. Peter, and later St. Paul to the Romans, <clears throat> is saying, those who embrace Christ and appeal to the Lord as we are preaching him, <clears throat> as we are teaching you about him, the truths that we are giving you from the apostles, those are what you have to have to truly and legitimately and sincerely invoke the Lord. This is the Lord and no other. And if, you're not, uh, if you do not believe in the Lord as we the apostles are preaching and teaching you, this is the true Lord Jesus Christ, you are not invoking the Lord, period. You're invoking somebody else of your own imagination but it's not the Lord. So I think it's very clear in, this, in these statements. Those who call upon the Lord will be saved, whether it's in the Old Testament, under Joel, repeated by St. Peter, repeated by St. Paul. <clears throat> it's very clear that is understood here, the Lord as he really is, not some fake idea of the Lord as taught by heretics, apostates, or any other, any other kind, okay? not invoking false Christs of human invention, but calling upon our Lord Jesus Christ exactly as he sent them out to preach the gospel to all nations. Mm -hmm. Okay. I hope that's clear enough. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> um, we, have, we have another question about the Bible. Father, sacred scripture, viewer wrote in and said, uh, what Bible, he asked, what Bible texts are good for looking at passages in the Bible? What additions are good? For the Old Testament, should one look at the Masoretic text, and then the Septuagint, and the Vulgate? Many texts have variants from the different Old Testament manuscripts. Uh, for the New Testament, does one look at the variants between the manuscripts? What lexicons and dictionaries are good for study? Any of these questions? Good question. Yeah. But before we get to that, let me just make two precisions, something that we said before. Somebody asked, did Archbishop Lefebvre ever deny the papacy, the primacy? Mm -hmm. It's precisely because he believed in the primacy of the Pope, successor of Peter. It's precisely because he believed in the primacy that he held Catholic tradition and questioned those who claimed to be popes, but who clearly did not uphold the primacy as the Church herself believes it. But I would like it clear that not only did Archbishop Feta not believe, not deny the primacy, but as a true traditional Roman Catholic, he did what he did because he does believe, because he did believe in it so devoutly and so firmly. And it's the same way you and I are traditional Catholics today. We are traditional Catholics because we believe in the primacy of the successor of Peter <clears throat> as the vicar of Christ on earth. That's why we're traditional Catholics. <clears throat> and you notice that those even those who believe in the importance of like the traditional mass and the traditional sacraments, but are they still staying with the new order? They are the ones who are changing the idea of the papacy to fit Francis. 
And they are the ones who are actually beginning to question the primacy of Peter, not us. They're the ones who are adjusting their belief in what the papacy is. And their belief in the primacy of Peter is under attack because they're trying to adjust their belief in the papacy to fit Francis. The other, the other thing I, I wanted to mention, Tom, if I can remember what it was, um, <clears throat> has to do with uh, this question. You know, the prophecy of Joel <clears throat> that St. Peter was referring to actually is cast forward to the end times of the world. So when Joel gives that prophecy, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you look at that in the prophet in the context of the last days of the world, when the world will well, our Lord says, when the Son of Man returns to judge, do you think he will find faith on earth? So faith will be very hard pressed in those days. And you hear the prophet Joel saying, Whoever still in that day calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I think he's also indicating that it will take heroic faith in those days and the circumstances of those days, the apostasy, to actually still call upon the name of the Lord. And that those who have that faith will have to be moved by such a strong faith, a powerful hope, and an invincible charity and love for God, that they can count that they will be saved because they'll be among the very few faithful in a largely perverted and apostate world. So I think there's more involved in the statement of the prophet Joel, whoever then calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, in the context of projecting forward to the end, the end of time, <clears throat> when faith will be premium and only those who love God greatly will still retain the faith and profess the faith. So anyway, but getting back to our Masoretic text here, mm -hmm. um, I thought it was necessary to kind of uh, adjust or add add a few thoughts to that. Sure. Yeah. But uh, what what is the question here? What is the best text to read? Is that it? Yeah. There's a, a bunch of um, yeah. He he asks if you if one should look at the Masoretic text and then the Septuagint and then the Vulgate. Um, In that order? Yeah, I guess so. No. Really? <laughs> no. I mean, Luther was the one who appealed to the Masoretic text in throwing books out of the Bible, basically. Right? The two books of Maccabees, for example, they're not in the Masoretic text, and so they're excluded, right? As though the Jews of the of the ninth and tenth centuries, you know, basically centuries, I mean, a thousand years after Christ, would be able to judge the Jewish, the Hebrew Scriptures, as to what was legit and what wasn't, what was really revealed and what wasn't. Well, they rejected the Savior, so. Why would we give them any credence in deciding, well, which of the ancient scriptures that were really, let's face it, they were all about our Lord. Yeah. All of those ancient Hebrew scriptures were, were all based on the fact that they, the chosen people <clears throat> were designated by God as the ones who would ultimately bring through the lineage of, from Abraham the, the Savior into the world, recognize him, acknowledge him, proclaim him, right? And they didn't, right? They rejected him. So why would one set them up, the, the rabbinical schools of the 900s, you know, of the first millennium, uh, why would they set them up as though they were the great judges of divine revelation, a revelation that was really about 
the promise of the Savior when they rejected the Savior? How could they possibly be reliable? <clears throat> so, besides, even among the Mazara, the, there was a lot of dispute about what the, what would the text would be and how it would be interpreted, interpreted, even how it would be rendered in Hebrew. There was no consensus, really. So, so uh, those who would point to the Masoretic text as the end-all and the be-all are, uh, are, are sadly mistaken. Notice that those who uh, champion the Masoretic text often do it to put down the Septuagint. The Septuagint was the, the Greek translation by the, the scholars who translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek because um, the Jews of the Diaspora, very separated from Hebrew, they, they were growing up in a Greek world and they knew Greek. Okay, so they wanted to render the Greek text for them to read <clears throat> for, the, for the Jews of the Diaspora. Those, those are the Jews who actually had spread into pagan lands, you know, from, from Jerusalem, from Judea. And uh, in the Septuagint, called the Seventy, because it was actually produced by 70 scholars of Hebrew and Greek, we translated, they actually translated books that you and I know as Catholics in the Old Testament that were left out of the Masoretic text and rejected um, by the Mazara in the 9th and 10th and 11th centuries. Um, <clears throat> we know that the Greek text given by the Septuagint is reliable because our Lord himself quotes it in the Gospel. He actually cites passages from those uh, from those, the Greek translation of the, uh, the Septuagint in, in his own words. Um, so the Septuagint is really uh, a Catholic text. It is accepted by the church. It has the endorsement of the church, the guarantee of the church, that it contains nothing contrary to, Catholic, to divine revelation. And it is reliable. And the books that are contained therein are in fact divinely revealed. And they do represent two faiths, and they really do represent um, the, the prophecies with regarding the, the coming Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so um, if you're going to look at anything as far as a reliable account of the Old Testament text, you go to the Septuagint. Um, if one wanted then to go to the Masoretic text and just out of curiosity say, well, what does that say? One could compare but of the two, the Septuagint has more authority because it has the authority of the Catholic Church behind it. Mm -hmm. What about the Vulgate? Is that a good source? Uh, the Vulgate is certainly a good source. Yeah, the Vulgate translated by Saint Jerome. Again, that's a Catholic. That's a, that is a, a Catholic endorsed uh, translation. The Catholic Church has guaranteed that there is nothing contrary to Catholic faith and morals. <clears throat> the, when the Catholic faith uh, rules on a, uh, the Catholic Church rules on a translation like that. The Catholic Church is not saying this is the best possible translation and there is, is not even the scintilla of error or, or you know, confusion. The Church doesn't guarantee that. Her guarantee is there's nothing contrary to true faith in this book, okay? So uh, you, you find in the, um, in the uh, Vulgate, St. Jerome, for example, talking about Moses coming down from Mount Sinai, 
and uh, he had to wear a veil over his face because it was very difficult for the Hebrews to look him in the face when they came for you know came to con consult him or whatever. And um, the the words from that time for the Hebrew um, between uh, like a ray of light or a horn were very similar. And St. Jerome translated that Moses actually had horns. You know. But since then, they've done more scholarly studies on the Hebrew at that time, and they realized <clears throat> that it actually meant like rays of light. His face was radiant with light, okay? Is there anything contrary to the faith in this? Say, no, it doesn't change, doesn't change the, the meaning of the text, really, the essence of the fact. But it does explain why, for example, when <clears throat> Michelangelo was carving his marble statue of Moses, there are two little nubs on his head, like little, little horns, because that was what the, uh, the, the um, Vulgate uh, translation of St. Jerome said, okay? Um, the fact is, though, his face was so radiant from conversing with God uh, that the Hebrews at our time, you know, facing him, seeing him, was kind of an overwhelming sight, you know? Um, so, the, but there's nothing contrary to faith and morals about that. It doesn't affect the doctrine of the faith, yeah. and this is what the church's guarantee is. So you can read the the true version of the of the Septuagint. You can read the true version of the Latin Vulgate of Saint Jerome, and have no fear of being led astray by false doctrine. Mm -hmm. Are there any other resources you would recommend for someone who wanted to study sacred scripture? Well, the Hadog Bible is, is endorsed by the Church. Uh, the, uh, of course, the so-called Douay Reims Bible is endorsed by the Church as a reliable text. There has just been this plethora of translations that have just uh, coming out of the woodwork here, all of them disagreeing with each other more or less and saying different things, which leads one to believe, what authority is there behind any of these things? And if I, if I were a Protestant, I would have to be asking myself, well, I have all these translations of the Bible. How do I know that any of them actually reflect the actual words of our Lord, the words of the apostles? I've got translations of translations that are produced by, by uh, uh, basically uh, typesetters, or in this day, I don't know, data entry people, and... <laughs> I have editors, and I have publishers, and it has to go through all these channels before I actually have something in my hand. And it's a tra somebody's translation, and how do I even know they translated correctly? To translate it correctly, he would have you know, like maybe 10 different possible translations of every word in there, <clears throat> and the translation depends upon what that person thought it should mean, according to what he believes. How do I have any any reliable uh, Bible that comes down to me in this direction unless you believe in a church which received authority from Christ to judge that and guarantee that? And we are, the Catholic Church is the church, right? And this is exactly what they, they reject. It's the authority they rejected, the very authority that Christ gave to the church to give them an authentic and authoritative Bible that they could trust really reflects the words of Christ and his apostles. They reject that authority. What are they left with? Again, it's like the Tower of Babel. All of these different 
Bible translations that are vying with each other for their attention, and uh, perhaps none of them are really accurate. That's the sad part of those who reject the actual real Catholic Church. You know? yeah. uh, that's why, again, we see our Lord did send forth his apostles with the command to preach the gospel, the true gospel to all nations. And when our Lord said, he, those who believe will be saved, and those who do not believe will be condemned, our Lord meant it, and we can take that literally. The word, the, the, the actual biblical word for believe, means a lot more than just intellectually assent to something. It means take it to heart, not only have faith, but be faithful to actually live this, this faith. And, but only the faith as the apostles gave it. Maybe if we, should, we should probably close pretty soon here, Tom. But let me, let me actually close by reading this, okay? Uh, this is from the, uh, the uh, statement of St. Paul. Uh, to the Romans, okay? This is what he says. Uh, For the Scripture saith, this is Romans, right? Chapter 10. For the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth in him shall not be confounded. For there is no distinction of the Jew and the Greek. For the same is the Lord over all, rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved quoting the, the prophet Joel. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? Or how shall they believe him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace, of them that bring glad tidings, gospel, of good things. So you look at that statement of St. Paul, which our writer referred to, Romans chapter 10, verse 13, and you read what comes after that statement, and you realize, well, St. Paul is making a very clear statement, <clears throat> that they can't believe in the Lord unless, they say, they cannot call upon him if they've not believed in him. But they can't believe in him unless they've heard the teaching of the gospel. And they cannot hear the word of the gospel unless someone come to preach the gospel to them. And that can only happen if they be sent by Christ. So you see, again, it is all tied back to that, the apostolic faith. They cannot call upon the Lord honestly and truly unless they knew, they really know who the Lord is. And that ultimately has to begin with our Lord sending out his apostles to preach the true faith. So when our Lord says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things I command of you? He's making it very clear, just because somebody's calling upon the Lord doesn't mean they're calling upon him, mm-hmm. unless they're actually following him and obeying him. If they're calling upon somebody else, or obeying somebody else, they're not calling upon the Lord. The true Lord. Okay. <clears throat> well, Father, perhaps you can uh, end with that. I know you've uh, you've had a busy week already. This All week Saints Day tomorrow, All Souls Day. Lots of heads. So, right. Yeah. All Saints Day tomorrow, then All Souls Day. 
gain the plenary indulgence for the souls of the faithfully departed. Mm -hmm. Go into the Catholic cemeteries, go into the Catholic, the traditional Catholic churches, go there and pray the six Our Fathers, Hail Marys, and Glory Bees. Go to confession if you possibly can within the week, receive absolution, receive our Lord worthily if you possibly can within the week, and uh, have a heart that is truly devoted to our Lord so much that you reject even your habits of venial sin. That's what's necessary for the plenary indulgence. And you can gain that indulgence as often as you are willing to go to enter the cemetery or the traditional Catholic church and pray those prayers for the souls of the faithful departed with those dispositions. So I encourage you to, uh, to let you know, God's grace reign upon the souls in purgatory and deliver them into the joys of heaven. Very good. It's Amen. in your power. Yep. Father, thank you. God bless you. Thank you, Tom. Yep. Thank you to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.